0: writer and i work at metallica hq in the bay area of california and i'm on promoter 101
1: oh glorious day friends welcome to a brand new promoter 101 podcast it's my honor to welcome back the one and only w luke pierce welcome back to the show luke
2: Dan, I'm so excited to be here. And I really just got to say, it's great that we are back doing Supermoter 101. I think we've all been yearning for a little bit more of you in our lives. And so it's just great to have it a little bit more consistently, whether it be here or over on Clubhouse. You've been really active over on Clubhouse for the last couple of weeks.
1: Well, there was an addiction you called. When you told me about that app, you told me I would take it to like a fish in water. And man, how were you right? I, I love it. I love Clubhouse. And we had a lot of fun on the platform last week as we did our first Promoter 101 panel on Clubhouse.
2: It was actually a blast. It was great to have some familiar faces together to talk and reconnect and just... It feels like an awesome place to be reconnecting, especially this time of year where we probably would have gone through several conferences together. I mean, we would be through Polestar, we'd be through APAP, we'd be at ILMC, which is happening this week. So Clubhouse is very timely in its entrance into the music business world of things because I think we're all just missing that right now, Dan. It's, It's that time of year in our lives, you know? But I think I did call that right. I think I was actually two for two in that conversation because also joining us in that call where we first talked about Clubhouse, I think I said, Dan, you will love it obsessively. And Brian Trager, the other part of that phone call, you will probably hate it. And I'm pretty sure Brian does.
1: Love it or hate it. We're all on it now. And if you have an iPhone and you've yet to find Clubhouse, download it from the App Store, get on the wait list and come find us on the Promoter 101 land as we start rooms whenever the fuck we feel like it, essentially.
2: More on that later in the podcast. But for now, let's get things rolling here, Dan, because I'm excited about... This this is our 224th episode, and we have a great conversation coming up. It's very timely because ILMC, the International Live Music Conference, is happening. It's going on virtually right now, usually over in London the Royal Garden Hotel. But we've got Germany's MCT Agency's CEO, Schumach Sabaka, discussing his work with Rammstein, Kraftwerk, and so much more. A lot of great stories, a lot of great insight coming up later in the podcast. And
1: a war story entitled A Slayer of a honeymoon in Salt Lake City. This features production manager Larry Rust, venue GM Corey Adams, and my
2: own wife, Elodie Steinberg, talking about a very special day in a very magical city. Can't wait for that. Promoter 101, episode 224 starts right now.
3: This is Julia Frank from Wizard Promotions in Germany, and we're on Promoter 101.
1: However you found us, we're glad you're here. You can touch base with me and Luke. Just hit us up and let us know your ideas, your thoughts, your requests, your personal, intimate moments. Share those with us, whatever you want. We're always happy to be your sounding board and listen to you. You can email us at steiny at promoter101.net. That's steiny at promoter101.net. That gets to both of us. So feel free to reach out. We love to hear from you.
2: Of course, we're all over the internet. Come join us. Have a conversation on Twitter. The show's at Promoter One Hundred and One, and I'm at W. Luke Pierce. Dan is at the Jew over on Instagram. The show is at Steiny Promoter One Hundred and One. Dan is at Dan Presents, and I'm W. Luke Pierce as well. Showing some consistencies. The socials there. Come on in. Slide in the DMs. We would love to hear from you.
1: Very excited to announce on Clubhouse every Tuesday night at six thirty Pacific, nine thirty Eastern. It is the Promoter 101 Storytellers Live on Clubhouse. We've got Jimmy Coplet coming up. For our very first one, that's next Tuesday, March 9th, followed by Andrew Druskin on the 16th, the 23rd of March, Kim Badir, And March 30th, closing out the month, Stuart Ross, just to name the first four. Coming up in April, we've got Ted Cohen, Bernie Cahill, Harlan Fry, and Eddie Mycone. And in May, Elliot Lefko, Wayne Forte, Jake Gold, and Dick Wingate. A full 12 sessions coming at you over the next three months. That's Promoter 101, Storyteller Live, on Clubhouse every Tuesday evening, 9 30 p.m. Eastern, 6 30 p.m. Pacific. We hope to see you there.
4: Jim Glancy Barry presents on Promoter 101.
2: Dan, a little goings on in the world right now. Like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, this is kind of the near end of the conference season for most of the music business. Of course, we would have had things kicking off in December with the unofficial start to the conference season at the Aspen Live Conference in Aspen, rolling on through APAP, rolling on through Polestar. And then over across the pond, we've got International Live Music Conference, which has become a favorite conference, I think, of both of us, Dan, over the past five or six years. And it is going on this week. Like most of the conferences, it is virtual. And I saw today on Instagram, Dan, that the the uh, crowd over at ILMC had the pleasure of seeing you host ILMC trivia in some almost highlighter green. I would describe it later hosing this morning. So you've been sitting on some of these sessions, Dan. How's it going over there? It's
1: just the best time in the world to see the industry coming back together and getting ready to roll out. And it's great to hear who's ahead, who's got a game plan, what's already working, who's already open, who thinks they're going to be open first. It's really exciting to see. This coming to an end that we're going to start to get some shows back on the road. Everyone's excited. It's a great time for this.
2: This comes on some timely news here. Of course, Live Nation, your parent company, announced, I think about seven, 10 days ago, that they would be proceeding with Reading and Leeds Festival, which is one of the larger festivals over in the UK. And upon announcing that they would proceed forward with their summer dates, their planned summer dates, with pretty much no alterations to capacity, astonished by ticket sales. You really think Europe and UK are really going to be the place where we can have people gathering in the mud in Europe this summer? Are we going to get there? What are they saying about this during this conference?
1: Well, when it comes to Europe, Melvin Bean is who you got to follow when it comes to festivals. And he, if he thinks it's safe to put these shows on sale, it's going to happen. Clearly, he is a reputable professional. He knows what he's doing. You got to trust the guy that's in charge. And Melvin is certainly an expert. So, I follow his lead and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Obviously, Iowa White got announced. And in back here in America, you saw October dates announced for ACL. So this is contagious. We're starting to see some some traction. And this is a good thing for the industry.
2: A lot of hopeful news coming out in regards to cases, vaccination rollout and uh, falling hospitalizations. So I think a lot of things to look forward to later in the year some
1: awesome breaking news. The Golden Gate Talent Agency has launched at the helm. Jason Copperman joining us right now. This is such great news. You've got your shop up and running. Tell us about it, my friend.
4: Yeah. Well, first off, thank you. It's a really exciting time. This company really embodies so much of what I stand for and what I want for my artists. And we've hit the ground running. I've gotten so much support. I'm so appreciative. And I just can't wait. I can't wait to represent my roster, kind of write my own rules, run the company uh, the way that I'd like to represent my artists.
1: All right. Well, let's talk about that roster. Who do you got with you already?
4: I've got Anomaly, Badfish, Big Gigantic, Busty in the Bass, Dennis Lloyd, King's Kaleidoscope, Magic Giant, Mobley, Oak and Ash, Pacific, Ripe, Sunsquabby, The Collection, and the Floozies.
1: Okay, so a lot of X right off the bat. Big Gigantic just announced some dates yesterday. So you guys are really hitting the ground, running full steam ahead.
4: Announcing a Torah the same day that I'm announcing my agency certainly made yesterday a busy day for me. But at the end of the day, it was powerful. It was exciting. There is a light at the end of this tunnel. There was a lot to be really excited about yesterday, a lot to be proud about. and So I just, I can't state enough. When I posted, I, I wanted the announcement to be about the artists and not about me. That's always how I've done it. I still feel like a kid every time I'm at their shows and it's there's still a pinch me moment of, I can't believe that this is how I get to support my family. And when I look at my roster, I every one of these artists, the potential is limitless. And, and it's really exciting to be able to represent them every day.
1: Well, it's GoldenGateAgency.com. That's how you find Mr. Kupperman. Reach out GoldenGateAgency.com. They're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Spotify. You can find them everywhere. Brand new agency. Congratulations, my friend. And it's great to have you right here on Promoter 101 as you're launching your brand new agency.
4: Thank you, as always, for the support. This is awesome. As we close out this segment,
2: we would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to honor some of the passings of uh, music legend and Australian concert promoter and impresario Michael Godinski, who died at the age of 68 this past week. Gadinsky, I don't know if there's a person who has more impact in a single continent's music scene than Michael Godinsky. He was one of the original folks running Mushroom Music Group, champion the likes of acts like Paul McCartney and Billy Joel and the Rolling Stones and Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift coming to his continent in, in Australia. He's being honored this week with a state funeral, which is an honor that I think very few people get, but just demonstrates the impact culturally that he had on his continent and his country. Gadinsky's passing was honored by many celebrities around the world from Australian native Russell Crowe, who hailed him as a towering figure on the Australian cultural landscape to Bruce Springsteen, who penned a very heartfelt post and called him one of the best concert promoters he had ever met. So Michael Gidenski, one of the legends in Australian concert promotions, rest in peace at age 68.
1: Tragedy else was struck close to home as one of the partners at APA, Josh Humiston, who'd been there for the better part of three decades passed this week. He was just 48 years old. He came up with a lot of us, and he will be dearly missed. Josh Humiston gone too soon.
2: And last but not least, another sad parting from the records world of things, Doug Smiley, who's the marketing director for Verve Music Group and formerly from Universal in downtown, worked with the likes of St. Vincent, Cold War Kids, Slater Kenny, Death Cat for Cutie, Barkley, Vince Staples, Santa Golden Moore, passed away this following weekend after a fight with pancreatic cancer. Uh, He was an illuminating presence in many marketing circles on the record side of things. And like the aforementioned gentleman that we mentioned here, his passing was met with outpours and remembrances from artists like Santa Gold to executives from all stripes. Doug seemed to be an incredible figure and will be sorely missed. Three sad moments to end this segment here. Just a a reminder of how incredibly fragile things are in the world and three people that were dearly loved by many people and had a a profound impact on a lot of people's lives gone this week. So hug your loved ones.
1: This is Karen from 10 Club Ticketing and I'm on Promoter 101.
2: Kicking things off this week with our interview ahead here. We're going to start with a war story. And it features our very own Dan Steinberg making his debut war story here in this podcast, as well as his lovely wife, Elodie Steinberg, who you might remember from podcasts around this time last year where she came in and spoke to us a little bit about the developing pandemic and the viruses around here. This will be one of the second features for Elodie here in the podcast. But Dan's got a story. It's a slayer of a honeymoon in Salt Lake City featuring some great characters like Larry Rust and Corey Adams. Here we go.
1: I had a story I was reminded of recently, which is one of my own war stories, and I've been able to pull a few of my friends together, including my bride, to talk about my first show after I was married that we had to stop at before our honeymoon because it was a particularly high-level, interesting story. And for that, I welcome my wife, Elodie. Hi, Dan. Set the scene for us.
5: Okay, so we got married on November 15th, 2003 in Vegas. We had just over a hundred of our closest friends and family, a lot of industry people that came in and had a fun, crazy weekend of it. The wedding was on a Saturday afternoon, and then early morning Sunday with the brunch hosted by your aunt and uncle, and then kind of us hanging out with friends, relaxing and kind of trying to recover from wedding craziness. And scenes that Slayer's had this romantic tie into our relationship as our very first Valentine's Day that we had living together. You were promoting Slayer at the McDonald. So I find out about the show that it was the Valentine's Day massacre with Slayer. So we've got Valentine's Day, so of course it makes sense for Honeymoon to be Slayer as well. <laughs>
1: Slayer had had issues in Salt Lake City historically with the crowd at a SLC show, but this show at the Great Saltaire was technically outside the city of Salt Lake. It was just outside in the foothills and it was going to be their first show. Now, also on the bill, as this was the Jaeger tour that Rich Levy was putting together every year, was Hatebreed as main support. Hatebreed had also had two past shows in the market at dva turn out to be mini malays so they had also been asked not back to the market by the local municipality at the time so you put them together and add a sponsor like jaeger in a market that doesn't particularly like alcohol as the big Mormon push there is not to drink, you've got something of a fun thing. Now, add weather to the mix and highway issues and a cold winter day. Larry runs production for me and Thrasher at the time. He's at our wedding and he leaves early to go cover production in Salt Lake. Larry Rust, give us your take at this point as you're leaving Vegas, getting to Salt Lake City and hearing from the band, Will they or won't they make it over the passes? Now we've got weather as an issue on a two-band sold-out show fiasco that's just got the makings.
0: Yeah, we all got out there with generators and a little bit of local stuff that we had sourced at around 8 or 9 in the morning and and, catering the whole bit. And about 11, I get a phone call from the tour manager saying, hey, we just went sideways on top of a mountain in the bus, so we're going to pull over for a minute. That's probably a good idea. They came rolling into the venue about two hours before doors, carrying full production sound and lights. So meanwhile, I've had the crew hanging out in the middle of nowhere most of the day. Some were able to go home, but they were all back and ready to rock. I think I I added a couple extra guys at the last minute, and at the end of the day, we had that whole thing up. First band was delayed a half hour. Not too bad for for rolling into a warehouse in the middle of nowhere, Utah. Um, Well,
1: well, well, well kind of but the first band was delayed by a half an hour because i took the first two bands off the bill and paid them anyway because we ran into curfew problems so what was a five band right. was now a three band bill because yeah i couldn't right. allow the other two bands to, the opening two bands to play just due to time issues but we did pay the right. other two bands because it wasn't their fault we offered full refunds but nobody wanted them and the kids had all waited outside before we opened doors. In the freaking cold for hours and very understandable, very forgiving crowd. And me and Elodie were waiting to hear from you because we hadn't left Vegas yet. It was a short 45-minute flight. We're waiting to hear from you whether the band was going to make it over the pass or not. Because we weren't going to come to Salt Lake City from Vegas, (laughs) leaving our wedding to to start our honeymoon in Vegas. We would have skipped right to a much more warm place had it not been. So you kept checking in with us, letting us know the status of the band. And it was, it was a will they or won't they make it over the pass? We kept revising the how long will the show go? How are we going to do this? Knowing we couldn't cut the length of the Slayer set. We couldn't cut Hatebreed set. These bands hadn't been there in years. And we didn't want to make the fans who we knew had a history of getting uppity in that market with these acts any more perturbed. But what we found was a very patient audience, a very grateful audience, a very workable Slayer, Hatebreed, and Jaeger tour, And they did make it over oh, yeah. the pass. The venue had been turned over To Phoenix promoter from the Nile, Corey Adams, who was then with The Collective, who was running it, and an old friend, Corey picked me and Elodie up from the airport, and I don't believe you guys had ever met before, had you, Elodie?
5: No, I hadn't met him, and, you know, it was definitely, if I remember correctly, the drive from the airport and everything was a little bit exciting with the Salt Lake snow and roads and such. And definitely- You've never been to Salt Lake
1: before either. Right? I know, it's no, and I had not yet. Of this very beautiful winter wonderland.
5: <laughs> exactly. So it's definitely a very interesting way to be introduced to Salt Lake and also meeting Corey at the same time.
1: Okay, so Corey Adams runs the Nile, which is the ballroom in Phoenix that hosted bands like Oasis, No. Facts: The Offspring, open floor, thousand cap, high energy, no alcohol, but a very fun place to see up-and-coming bands. And Corey was rough and tough, and he was a Golden Gloves champion. This is going to come into play here in a minute. So... Me and Corey had a great long-term relationship because we'd known each other for years, but Elodie had never met Corey, and he definitely had a rougher edge to him.
5: Yeah, no, it was like we were hanging out in the office as you guys were sorting out everything with the show stuff and... Know that had, there was definitely some back and forth as to how things were going to be proceeding, and I could say I was a little bit intimidated by Corey. It was trying to as he was trying to figure out exactly how things were going to work out.
1: So things are getting weird. Larry's running the show, dealing with the act. I was doing settlement and dealing with Corey. Corey was trying to keep security on their toes, but at the same time, he had had some people step out of line with him and Corey was fast with his fist so literally in the office he wound up getting into a fist fight with the head of security and cory beat the shit out of him <laughs> do you remember the fist fight with the security guard in the office you know that kind of stuff happened quite often so i don't really remember why that happened i don't know what brought that on but it doesn't surprise me because uh in Salt Lake City, everybody liked to fight, whether they were my security guards or straight edge kids or whatever, but everybody wanted to fight in Salt Lake, man. They went to shows to fight.
0: Wait, were you in the room for this? <laughs> I was not in the room for that, but I, there, there was a lot going on that night. We booked a ton of security for the show, and going in, I was like, oh man, I wonder if this is overkill, and by the end of the night, they were pretty busy. It was They were a rowdy crowd. There was a gentleman I was as I recall, had a pencil go through his cheek in the pit. It was our ambulance ride out of the place. We had two ambulances standing by, as I recall. The second one, luckily, was not deployed. I, I believe
1: my, my comment to you was, you can't spend enough on security on this show.
0: <laughs> Isn't that the truth? And I'll tell you what, they were busy. It was, yeah. It was a very active pit in Salt Lake. They came both out. players
1: Slayer's Camp and Hate Breed's Camp, both very much, we don't care what the security bill comes in at. Let's just make sure this is a safe night spend what you must spend, profits be damned, which actually is something I've seen from both those bands historically, protect the crowd first at all costs. They've all, they, Both bands have always been very good, I, I feel. I think, Larry, you've seen that too. It's The production is always Definitely. top of the line and the crowd comes first, safety first. Definitely. So a quick two and a half sets later, because I think the opening band started five minutes late, which was actually the third band, but they only got a quick like 15 minute set which was super reduced, Hatebreed played a song
5: hate breed is the one that dedicated the song to us <laughs> and jamie came up to us and was like did you hear us and we we're just like yeah of course we did
1: <laughs> and that's the genius of, of, of uh death metal song you need someone like, like... <laughs> they dedicated a song to your new marriage on stage exactly and, uh, yeah it was one of those oh sure we understood
5: the translation like jamie, jamie and the hate
1: breed boys just mm-hmm. amazingly supportive and great friends and Amazing right. live band to, to to work with, and I, I beg both bands know that you guys haven't had they haven't been able to play here in a while. Please, please, please control the show from the stage because it's on you guys. And normally, when you you make that plea to bands, you take the risk of them going, oh yeah, yeah, you got one coming. But both bands understood why I was why I was concerned, why I was there, and kept the crowd entertained, high energy shet. And at the same time, kept control and you never, never let it get out of control because the eyes were on us that night, for sure. Thank you, Elodie and Larry and Corey, for bringing back this tale of our Slayer honeymoon.
2: What a wonderful evening. (laughs) Great to have a fun one about our very own Dan Steinberg and, of course, his lovely wife, Elodie, joining us here on the podcast. Promoter 101 War Story debut for Dan Steinberg. How do you feel?
1: You know, I'm I'm glad we, we broke the ice and we got through that. You know, now the stories will flow freely because we've 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 got it out there. It's, it's happened.
2: There you go. War stories. It's good to have a war story back in the podcast, and it's been a moment since that. But I think this is a good time also to plug the upcoming Storytellers Hour that we're leading on Clubhouse for the next couple of weeks because it will have a somewhat war story kind of feel to it, right?
1: I'm excited that it's not an interview platform as much as storytelling because some of the people on this particular series are some of the best storytellers we know. I mean, you think of names like Stuart Ross and Jimmy Coplick and Ted Cohen, you just know, you know they got the good stories. I can't wait.
2: Check it out. Promoter 101's Storytellers Live is a new weekly series, a part of Promoter 101, only on Clubhouse. It's going to be some iconic guests, famous industry tales, followed by a Q&A session. First guest, March 9th, Live Nation's Jimmy Coplick. Go check it out. If you're on iOS, download the Clubhouse app and we'll see you on there.
1: Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Except it's not. Tuesday, Tuesday,
4: Tuesday.
2: Hey, this is Brandon Frankel at Promoter
4: 101. Tweets of the Week.
2: All right, it's the name of the show, so we got to talk about the inspiration of them. That's, of course, tweets from the mind of Mr. Dan Steinberg, hashtag promoter 101. Dan, you've kind of been a little quiet the past couple of weeks, I would call it on socials. I think it's been because you're spending a lot of time in those clubhouse rooms, but you did make some time this past Sunday morning stirring the pot with this first one. Let's check it out. Content and good content are not the same thing. Yeah,
1: Clubhouse inspired this one. Some amazing rooms. There are some good rooms, and then there's eh,
2: some not so good rooms. I hear you on that. Not all press is good press, Dan.
1: Eh-eh, look what you did there.
2: Here's one that I think I would say 99% of the music business, maybe not the Christian promoter or agency side of things, could relate to. I've become so used to autocorrect changing my typing to ducking that I just started typing the D instead of the F. You no, know, this is ducking ridiculous, Luke. Oh, wow. Man, dad jokes today. You've you've got them, Dan. Guilty with the dad jokes. Here's another one that's Clubhouse related. A lot of Clubhouse related content going on this weekend, Dan, but there are a lot of people to be made fun of on that platform. It's amazing to me how many people are able to be on Clubhouse all day and yet be billionaires.
1: Yeah, I admit it. I'm totally addicted to Clubhouse, but there's a limit. But how many billionaires are there and yet still have the time to be on all day? Because... A lot of people seem to be claiming they're billionaires and
2: on Clubhouse. For the record, I am not a billionaire. Well, Dan, thanks for clearing that up for us. It's good to know. That'll do it for Tweets of the Week. If you're interested more about the mind of Dan Steinberg and some goings-on about the music business, join the conversation and follow Dan on Twitter. He's at the Jew. This is Joe Atamian, and I'm on Promoter 101. All right, coming up now, our featured interview Again, a very timely one, talking with one of the biggest promoters, agents, impresarios in Germany. We've got MCT Agency's CEO, Schumek Sabatka, here on the podcast. This man has worked with everyone from Rammsteen to Kraftwerk and so much more. Dan had a chance to sit down with him here on Promoter 101.
1: We have a rare treat. Throughout the course of COVID, we've really been focusing on North America. But today, we have a promoter, manager, agent, triple threat. Welcome to the podcast. And thank you so much for making time for us.
3: Dan, thank you so much. And I would have 12 months for you every single day because not much to do.
1: Well, it's good to know when there's nothing going on, we'll be good filler. Let's talk about your amazing career. Right off the bat, the fact that you manage, promote, and are an agent all simultaneously in Europe, that's actually pretty common for people to have multiple hats, right?
3: Yes, it is. And I think there's a reason for that. I think the reason is that possibly our markets are slightly smaller. So when you look at countries like Germany or Austria or France or Sweden, sometimes what we do in our promoting world doesn't pay for everything we'd like to you know, go up for. So as it is, sometimes artists will come to you and say, hey you are an interesting promoter could you also look after my career and then mostly you know people on the other side which is agents and you know colleague promoters in other countries and then it's an easy switch I'm not saying that my management and agent' life is as maybe successful as the promoting life but it's a lot of fun and you understand more of the entirety of the business if you tap into these other areas so, you know, I couldn't do fully what I do for promoting for the other two, I would say, regions in my professional life. But it's a lot of fun. And I do good, I think.
1: And you see Simon Moran both managing the Stone Roses while he's possibly promoting them. That happens quite a bit. Barry Dickens is the agent for a lot of his acts in the UK Well, he's also the London promoter. Organically, the business has been built that way across Europe, where it definitely is something where you see people that have mastered multiple crafts. In the business. Is that possible because there's less traffic of the superstars over there that maybe there's the ability to do multiple things because there's maybe less traffic?
3: No, I don't think it has anything to do with traffic. I think it maybe has something to do also with legislation, where I believe in Britain and in America, you know, agents and managers and promoters per se may not be. Doing other things or may not be allowed to do other things. For example, agents in Britain may not be so easily promoting stuff, whereby here, you know, there's no re- regulation. We can do whatever we wish for.
1: Yeah, that's true. There is a law in states in America, not all cities and on, not all states, so it's not across the board, but you can't double commission. So in the case of an act that had been managed by a promoter, you could promote them and manage them, but you could only take one commission and it would have to be cleared when that show was done which side and you'd have to give up the other side but you can't double dip that's very well outlined and why well, take the risk and it's usually cleaner to have somebody else do it but in the case of some other countries it's it's always been organically done that way
3: and plus just to say that we wouldn't double dip even without a legislation in place we would not pay get paid on two commissions you know because you because first of all i think it's unethical second of all just because you look after an act and you promote them because they trust you doesn't mean that you should make money twice. That's not the way it should be.
1: Okay, so we're going to talk about Kraftwerk. We're going to talk about Ramstein. We're going to talk about the Radioheads and the Jam's that throughout your career. But let's go back to the early days. Let's talk about 1984 when MCT really got started because that's, that's really the entry to you in the business, right? Yeah, that's correct. We were
3: I was a, a tour manager for a company in Britain called Rough Trades, who were the number one independent label in Britain. And they had started out to have a booking company called All Trade Booking. I think they're formed in nineteen seventy-eight. It was run by Martin Elborn, Mike King, and Nick Hobbs. And in nineteen eighty-two, Nick Hobbs rang me and said, Oh Skumek, I, I heard that you are a minibus driver and that you can set up back lines and you can do a little bit of card reading. And that's not the card reading for you then for your future. It's the actually road map reading. So you can get an act from A to B. And I said, yeah, and, and is free GPS,
1: right? This is like this is
3: free GPS and I still collect all my maps from back at the time. So he said, would you be interested to do a European tour for the Vine and Femmes? They have not, they don't have, the, they don't have the funds to bring someone. It's a three-month tour. It will stretch all across Europe. And I said, "When is it going to start?" He said, "It's going to start in two days, and you have to (laughs) you have to come to London to pick them up at the airport." So I went to London, started that. So I've done that for eighty-two and eighty-three. But really, while I was doing European kind of tour management for Jonathan Richmond, you know, and many other acts, I thought I really want to be on the other side. You know, the side at night when I go to the little scruffy room, and then there's the, the guy with the mustache, and he pays you the money, and it's all kind of interesting. I want to, I want to do that. Um, you want to be the guy with the mustache? I want to be the guy with the mustache without the mustache. So I became, in 84, the guy with the mustache without the mustache with two other friends who had the same idea, and we thought that was... And the real reason, then to be completely frank to you, we wanted to promote the acts that we loved. We didn't really give a flying fuck about money. We just thought oh, man, if we can get the Ramones over to Germany, if we can get the Dan, if we can get King Kurt, you know, John Cale. These were the first bookings that we took in 84. We We were no one. It was us and Uncle Tom. And then we just worked our way, you know, through the business and lost a shitload of money. We found out very quickly that... The agents in Britain were much better in calculating than us, and we didn't really know how the figures worked. And after two years, my partners both left me, and I kept on doing what I was doing. Now,
1: how did you finance yourself in the early days when you started doing shows? Because you talk about losing money. Where did the money come from? Because I'm getting the gist that you didn't come from huge financial background.
3: It was called Mom and Dad. So I went to Mom and Dad and said, Mom and Dad, can you loan me a little bit of money? And then a month later, I said, "Um, that money was great, but can you loan me a little bit more? And my partners did the same. And then at one point, when we ran out of money, we started not to pay the taxes. I can say this now because I am exempt from the law, and I will tell you in a minute why. So we we didn't pay VAT. We lied about everything that we did in, in terms of getting the cash flow going, and I think possibly some of the people that I have heard on your fantastic podcast before had possibly done the same without me naming them. Because in the beginning, you just don't know. You need to go to the box office, pick up the money from the future show that you're going to do and pay you know, pay the whole. So... Robbing,
1: robbing Peter to pay Paul. Absolutely. But go back. How are you above the law and you didn't have to pay it?
3: Okay, so can I jump? I, I, I'm going to jump to 1993 when I was so deep in the hole that... My tax advisor at the time said, I cannot work for you anymore because if I I go on advising you on tax that you are not paying, I will also go to jail. And and when he said, what do you mean also? Who is the other person that's going to jail? And he said, it's going to be you. And I then had to do a deal and did a deal with um, Marcel Abram and Fritz Rao, who at the time were Mama Concerts and Rao, the biggest probably European promoters, and they gave me a half a million, which I then gave to the tax man. But by doing that, I signed a letter by saying, this is what I've done. I've broken the law, but here's the money for breaking the law. And then you take your exempt from prosecution because you pay and you pay the interest. So I can say that right now.
1: OK, so you're
3: not exempt so much as you make good. That's correct. Okay. Skipping forward to the 90s. Business was getting better, but the sums were getting better too. So the, the losses were higher and the profits were not so big. And I then sold 80% of my company to Mama Concert and Rao and still did what I did. So I was working with Ceiling Dion, Lenny Kravitz, you know, REM, all the stuff that I used to do when, you know, when it was, when it was smaller but, but and my, this is in the
1: mid nineties when these Celine Dion's the biggest thing on the planet, Titanic and everything, had hit.
3: Well, I did I, I was involved with John Giddings before she had the hits. So we did two tours. John to getting, us, there's a big name. Oh yeah. I knew John well because he was the man because from nineteen eighty four to nineteen eighty five, I think we sent him Telex every single fucking day. Hello, John. We are a new company. We want to promote the moments. Can you please call us? And he will not reply. He would not reply. He would not reply for a year. And then at one point, he did reply and he said, What number? So we gave him our phone number. He called us. And from then on, I wouldn't say we had a friendship, but he, you know, we promoted the Ramones for, I don't know, 15 years. So he knew me and he said, I have something that's maybe a little bit out of your comfort zone. I have an act from Canada called Celine Dion. I think she's going to be big it's not like the Ramones, do you want to be involved? And I said, yes. And we did a couple of shows. We sold a couple of thousand tickets and it worked. So yes, me and John are Ramones, Celine Dion buddies. And then I got fired.
1: So a couple of things. First of all, Promoter 101 fans, episode 23, John Giddings is featured. It's, that's up, you can find it. And he is a king among king in global touring. It's kind of the yin to the yang for Arthur Fogel, and they're both part of Live Nation. So he's an amazing thing. Rolling Stones, U2, Madonna, Celine Dion, they're all part of his, his world. So definitely a great thing to check out. Let's talk about the German market for a second, because early on, before the Beatles broke America, Germany was like really where they took off. You guys have had a big music scene. Rock and roll has been just massive over there since the 60s. Has the scene always just been that vital?
3: First of all, I'm only born in 62, so I can't speak for the for the time of that scene. But I remember that promoters like Fritz Rau and Marcel Avram were around in the 60s. And they would be promoting Deep Purple, ACDC, Alice Cooper, Pink Floyd. And it was big. It, you know, how big it was, I really don't know because, you know, I was still a kid. When I started to go to see shows, this is in 1974, my first ever concert was a concert of... ACDC supported by Judas Priest. Is that a stadium show? No, it was an arena. It was a, mean, a small arena tour in Dortmund and they played in front of 3,000 people. So I went to school and in this year of school, I had to do a six month apprenticeship and my father got me an apprenticeship at a printing office. The printing office happened to be the printing office of the biggest venue in the area and I happened to be the little schmuck that was standing at the printing machine putting the numbers on the tickets. So while I'm standing there as a punk printing the numbers for the ACDC tickets, I said to the higher up next to me, I said, do you know what we're doing? And he said, yeah, we're printing tickets. I said, no, no, no. Do you know what tickets we are printing? And he said, I don't know what that is. I said, it's fucking ACDC. That's so, I like it. <laughs> I said, do you think they will find out if we double print the tickets? He said, nah, but the Hells Angels are the security, so maybe they know. So this little guy, his name is Dietmar, and me printed two extra tickets. We printed one, th- the, the, the ticket number 1,000 and 1,001. We were 14 we went to the gig and there were health angels taking the tickets, and we were nearly shitting ourselves of fear that these guys would recognize that these two numbers were wrong. We went in and it was the first show that I had ever seen. I stayed to the to the end and it was amazing. So, I could have been a tout if I would have stayed with the printing. I didn't become a tout, but it was that was my introduction to music. But at the time, just to answer your question. There were a lot of rock shows. I think rock was probably the bigger genre that was you know, playing in Germany. As I said, Pink Floyd, ACDC, Alice Cooper, and a whole bunch of German bands, including Kraftwerk, um, that were very small in 1974. So it was interesting. Yeah, but I can't really say and, and vouch for how good it was back in the 60s.
1: But you did manage to just out yourself for forging two tickets before you ever even got into the business. That's correct. I think the Hell's Angels be knocking on your door any moment now. (laughs) Was it a GA show or was it seated? GA show. Okay, so literally once you were in, you were in. It didn't even. It wasn't even like yeah, but no one was ever figuring that one out. So you got to work with the Ramones and Tom Waits in the early days, right? Like that was part of your early days. Convincing acts to come to Germany, particularly U.S. acts, was that a
3: challenge? It was a challenge because because at the time we were not. I think Britain and America had already introduced higher ticket pricing. I would say, for example, i give you an example. I think Tom Waits, when we promoted him the first time in 85, I think that we had then taken the highest ever ticket price we had ever taken, which I believe in my memory was 40 DM, mark which would have been 20 euros, which would have been... Twenty-four bucks, And we, you know, we went with Paul Charles over and over. Is this going to be too much? Is this going to be, you know, it's going to be okay? So a lot of times we found that international acts, specifically American acts, couldn't get the funding from what we were offering to come to Germany. So if we then made an offer, we usually made an offer for one, two, or maximum three shows, you know, that we felt comfortable. So we would do a show in Berlin and Hamburg and in Cologne or sometimes Munich. And that was the end of it, you know, even though Germany is quite a big market. But if you look at it from a perspective of going to Europe, you just do two, three, or four shows. And it took us a while to understand when John Giddings called and he said, "Skumek, the money's shit. And I go, Yeah, but I'm giving you sellout money. He goes, The money's shit. You need to up the money. And then with John, I I would say, Well, John what?
1: ever told you the money was too much. He ever come in and say you're not off you, you you're sending too much. Bring down the offer?
3: No. Interesting you say that. <laughs> but you know what we did? Then we would say to John, John, why don't you tell me what you expect so we don't have to go back? Because remember, it's Telex. You were typing in the numbers by Telex. You're making these you know, things on little machines.
1: All right. So Let's explain to the younger generation that have probably never heard of a Telex machine uh, what that is. Because it's pre-fax, right? So, you know, now it would just be emailing a PDF, but Let's go back to the days of Telex
3: and, okay. and so the, a little bit. Exactly. So you remember the day. The, the Telex is basically a, a typewriter, but the downside with the typewriter is that if you type a number wrong and you go, oh, oh, shit, this is the wrong number, you can really not revert. You cannot go back. So the number is wrong. So you have to say, my offer is $1,200. But if you put the comment to the wrong thing, it suddenly becomes a much different number. Then you go back and you say, John, I did not mean that. If John in his graceness, didn't read the full telex and he only read the first number, he would send your contract on the wrong number. And then you had to prove to him this is all before email and telex and telefax. John, but that's not what I meant. It was you had to be extremely concentrated. That's To write them, and everything was in very, very short um, memo style because it took a long time if you couldn't type to type these bloody things.
1: Just a different world. And speaking of a different world, and I'm guessing you got in the business after this, just right after this happened, but the wall came down right before you started doing shows, right?
3: No, the wall came down in 1989, and we started in 1984. So we had five years of wall. And then the wall came down and I was in Berlin at, with a show with I had a double night. I had a show with Melissa Etheridge and Bill Leopold and the manager and Maria McGee with her agent Paul Wilson and we were and both shows were cancelled because the trucks couldn't make it to Berlin. We because it was just a, a huge backup, you know, a backlog at the at the border. And then this is before cell phones. So somebody called me at the production office at the Melissa Etheridge show and said, Schumag, I think the trucks are not making it. I said We were in Hamburg last night. It's a 200-kilometer drive. Why are they not making it? Well, because there's a commotion at the border. I said, what's the commotion at the border? Well, we don't know. So we don't know, we didn't know, and then slowly, you would hear the wall is open, and this is, okay, we knew there were demonstrations in Dresden and Leipzig for two years, and they were growing, but we were never expecting the wall to open. And then the wall opens. And it was how
1: big, did that change your business? Besides that night where it fucked up the shows, how did that change your business?
3: As Germany opened up, got bigger. We had more show, you know, we had more tickets to sell. We had another seventeen million people that were possibly wanting to see the attractions that we were promoting. So we would suddenly go to Dresden, we go to Leipzig, we go to Rostock, we go to Erfurt. You know, we had all these. Because you markets.
1: were you were able to promote those markets before then, right? You couldn't get the acts into those markets. You couldn't get. Oh, no, you could not. not.
3: No before so it
1: literally it was, opened up half the country for you. That's correct. Building that market had to greatly benefit you financially over the, the course of the year seeing that open up like that.
3: Yes, but what we what we did find out is that what would happen to be selling well in Cologne wasn't necessarily happening also in Dresden. So because Germany is is kind of decentralized if you i mean it's probably like the states if you do well in Milwaukee it doesn't mean that you will do in Florida you know it, it, there is a different taste so the different taste also was now in the eastern part of the country plus the eastern part of the country was relatively i wouldn't say poor but you know they had to save the funds because in the beginning of reunification you know the money was shit so sometimes in the beginning we would take a ticket price for the former western Cities, and then we would take another ticket price for the former eastern cities, which was, you know, usually considerably lower.
1: Fascinating to me just the whole difference of like financially valuing the money, opening up the marketing, realizing there's an education that has to happen as everybody unifies. There's going to be two different cultures. So, just because one side of the wall likes ACDC, the other side of the wall may not even have an education on who they are, and waiting for that to catch up, you're not just adding markets, you're waiting for them to be able to afford the economics, and for them to care about it. That's that's actually really like a whole lot of culture that you don't even play into in your mind. You're just like, oh, I've just doubled my market share. You probably had to get an education on what the other side of the wall was into so you could go in there and start working with those acts and start to bring them over to the other side as well and open up the market and educate them. Wow. The,
3: the first tour that we took to Leipzig, to tell you, was actually with Giddings. We took the Ramones to, to Leipzig. And I remember, you know, pre-show, the band was in the dressing room and they said, but screw me, are the Russians here? Johnny. And I said, Johnny, no, the, the, the Russians are not here anymore. The Russians have left. No, but how do you know that? I said, well, I, I don't know that, but you need to go out and check whether there's any Russians here. I said, before I go out, if there were any Russians here, would it make a difference? I don't know. I need to know. It was fun. I mean, and I have to say, the Ramones were loved as much in the West than in the East. It was... Oh, the Ramones, right? I mean, exactly. the coolest
1: fucking punk band of all time. Exactly. And they, there seemed to be a craze for them that they didn't have throughout the States over in Europe. Like, they were loved here, but they were just another pop band. Over there, they have a mini Beatle kind of vibe, right? It was totally. a huge craze with them wherever they went,
3: right? Yes. I mean, for John, over the years, I promoted Germany, but I was his production person to put all the production together for all of Europe, and we did some amazing shows. I remember the first time we went to, I think, the Czech Republic, and they played in front of 10,000 people. And, you know, me and my security guard were saying, well, we need a crash barrier. So they would would build a crash barrier out of scaffolding that they would take off the building on the next side of the street.
1: Let's talk about you going pan-European and Australian and entering the world of of Rammstein, because, I mean, I don't think there's a cooler production in the stadium world than the show Ramstein puts on. I couldn't name a Ramstein song to save my life, but there's a show I will go anytime I'm near it because what they do production-wise is amazing. It's kind of like gore. I I don't know that anybody's ever listened to a gore album at home, but I go to the show any chance I get, and Ramstein just does that to the next 10th degree level. It's production, pyromania, the lights, the spectacular, that thing is like a WWE entry song that lasts for four hours. It's fucking insane.
3: The, the nutshell is, in 1995, I, because I didn't promote any German acts other than Crawford. I wasn't really interested in, in German acts. I was always interested in the Ramones, the damned Pearl Jam, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, I was always looking outside of my country. I never really promoted many of the German acts. So somebody from a label sent me a tape, remember before the CD, the, the tape, semi tape saying, school there's a band called Rammstein, they're from the East and they sing in German, I think you maybe, maybe it's your sound because it sounds kind of electronica and I love electronica and, and they were saying, it's not like Nine Inch Nails but if Nine Inch Nails were Germans, maybe that would be what they would sound like. So I listened to it and I went to see them and there were six of them on, on a tiny stage, damn a tiny stage, and they would still light themselves up on fire till would you know take this huge coat and be on fire just like two meters in front of me, and I'm going, holy crap, this is this is sincere. These guys don't you know they mean they mean something. So I had a meeting with the manager a couple of days later, and I said, have you guys ever thought of going abroad? And he said, yeah, we kind of thought about going abroad. We don't know how to do that. And I said, well if you, the band, let me promote you, I will do three shows outside of Germany for you, and I will get you the support of the Ramones. And they went, okay, if you do it, because they had a promoter who had done two, one tour with them, if you do that, we will switch to you. So I rang Assad Debs from Korea in Paris, I rang Herman Sherman's in Belgium, and I rang Rob Tromelin in Holland, and I said, I have this amazing band Okay, they sing in German and none of you speak German, but they're putting on a fucking amazing show. And I ran Giddings. I said, Giddings, I, I have a really great band. They want to do the support. And he goes, well, how much of that worth? I said, I think that may be worth another 500 tickets. And he goes, i tell you what, you can have them support the Ramones, but they can't get any money. And you pay me that extra money on top of what you're paying the Ramones. And I went, okay because I really wanted to get the band. So we did a show in Paris, we did a show in Brussels, and we did a show in Amsterdam in front of maybe 40 people each, maybe 50, including me, so maybe 51. You know, it was very, very dire, I think is the proper word. When Johnny saw the band opening for them in Hanover, he came to me and said, Skumek, I think there's a guy on fire. In the support band i said yeah yeah no i know he goes is that dangerous I said, no no it's okay it's all controlled so i started with that and then in 97 david lynch puts up lost highway and puts a rammstein song on the soundtrack and a lot of people i mean a lot of people that love david lynch recognized what the fuck is this is a bunch of germans singing in german we don't know what they're singing so suddenly, it got a little bit more on vogue to maybe sing in German, and then the band said, "Okay, so Schumek, we want to play more than just the three shows." So I went with my tape recorder to all the promoters that I knew in Europe, and I rang Mark Geiger. It was the Triad, and I knew I knew Chris Dawson at Triad, and I knew Keith bit and I knew Geiger. I said, "Geiger, I have this German band, and I really want to play CMJ in New York. Can you help me fix it?" And he helped me fix it. I don't know whether he ever came down to see them. And I said, after we had done the shows, this is, I think, in 98, we had done the shows at CMJ in New York. I said, so, Mark, do you want to represent the band in America? And he said, no. Then Bob Biggs from Slash Records signed the band in America, and it kind of got a lot of traction. I had a little bit of traction in Europe. We did our first shows in Poland, our first shows in Russia, all in front of maybe a couple of hundred people. The production was very, very small at the time, but still very amazing if you you know see that people are putting themselves on fire. And then it grew. And then at one point, Ken West and Vivian Lees called me from Australia. And I said, oh, we heard of, you have this crazy, you have, you have these crazy Germans. We want them in Australia for the big day out. And that's when we went to Australia and played the big day out. So it kind of grew organically. The band would, you know, do more records, more videos, and it just got bigger. So, you know, I was just a helping hand. And that's why, you know, I started to do this, you know, stuff in Australia.
1: Did you know all these guys through like ILMC or something when you were calling them?
3: No, I didn't know. I didn't know Ken and Vivian. I, I had gone to the Island Sea. I had gone to the New Music Seminar in New York. So I knew guy, Geiger from the Violent Femmes, I think. I, so I knew some people, not many, but you know. And I knew Gary Kurfürst very well. And he would point me to, oh, you got to speak to that guy to speak to that guy. And I was a lot in New York in my first maybe ten years of of MCT from ninety uh, from ninety eight to eighty-four, sorry, eighty-four to ninety-four. Um, so I knew some people just by coincidence, you know, Tom Chauncey is one of them, you know, who I ultimately promoted Ben Harper and Johnny Hooker and many others. So, you know, I had a little network of people, but I didn't know any of the Australians. But with Ken, I became friends, Ken West of the big day outs.
1: Pure hustle. So you're promoting, you're an agent. How did you get into the management world?
3: The management world kind of came to me in 1991. I was desperate to sign a a German act, the German act in my book, Kraftwerk. And I was based in Dusseldorf with my team, and they were based in Dusseldorf. And I didn't know how to contact them. And at the time, the band was with Ian Flux at Wasted Talent. And so I would send telexes to Ian Flux saying, I would really like to promote the band, even though they had been promoted for, I think, 10 years by my absolute idol in the the promoting world in Germany, Fritz Rau, who has passed away um, quite a while ago. And so I said, well, you know, I don't really want to take this away from Fritz, but I really have a new idea. I want to put them into bigger clubs and play multiple nights. And at one point, Ian Flux, I think he called me, and then he said, I'm going to give this to Emma Banks She's my next in line, and she's going to book it with you. So that's how I know Emma for, I don't know, 30-plus years. And so we did the tour in in Germany in 1991 with Kraftwerk, and I got along with the band, with Ralph and Florian quite well. And then, you know, a year later, they said, well, would you like to, not managers, but would you like to look after us and be our person that puts it all together and budgets and numbers and all that kind of stuff? And that's what I did for 28 years. So you're the manager without being the manager. You're the business manager. They never wanted a manager because I think they were they were shy. They were afraid of what it would mean to the outside world because they were purely artistic-driven, and they decided everything amongst themselves. So they were afraid that if I would become or anyone would become the manager and I would maybe have managerial tasks, I would say, to them. Ooh, i do not like your music you need to go back to the studio but of course you know i did, i was interested in that and i didn't do that so it was a it was an amazing time and we did some amazing not just amazing but we did some i, I would say groundbreaking things for, for that little world that we were in which is the music electronic world you know you know playing festivals this is back in the 90s playing museums doing the one to eight catalog shows that was Ralph's idea. it was it was amazing, you know. It was amazing to be with them, but then after 28 years, it kind of reached the, the point of, you know, I I had to say goodbye.
1: But you managed other acts too, where you were fully
3: their manager. That's correct. I look after probably the, the most underrated singer from the Arab world called Yasmin Hamdam, who is from Beirut. I look after an amazing electronica artist called Dinos Chapman, who is by definition, with his brother, or used to be with his brother, the Chapman brothers, who are artists. They are painters, but he's also done some fantastic recordings. And as of recent, I look after a photographer called Andreas Mühe, because as you have maybe noticed through this virus that is coming through the world, not much promoting is going on. Therefore, I'm looking after a photographer now, because photography, photography can be sold and made even in
1: times of this. Revenue when there is a pandemic and you can't do super spreader events. Got it. Well, that that's forward thinking for sure. Were you managing him before the pandemic?
3: No, in, in the middle of the pandemic, I started in uh, March last year.
1: Well, that's what create entrepreneurs do. They evolve and they figure out a way to make revenue when you can't in your normal day-to-day. Now, in the last couple of years, you've gotten involved with a new ticketing platform that really focuses on, face-value reselling tickets across Europe. What a great idea. I mean, it's anti-scalping environment basically, but it's a platform. Can you talk about that?
3: Yes. And do you remember the time when the internet, which is the word, and nobody knew what it really meant? This is, I think, in the middle of the 90s. Somebody the said- Speaking
1: of Mark Iger, yes, that's exactly when I yeah. learned. <laughs> when he was telling me to own my web domain and that there was going to be this electronic mail thing, and I wasn't sure how it was going to get to my mailbox if it
3: was electronic. Yep, same for me. Somebody said, schoolmaker you need to have your domain. And I said, uh, so I picked Tickets.de. I went, if anyone in the future wants to do something with me, who would they look for? They wouldn't look for Scrumac. They don't know me from Adam. They won't look for MCT. They will look for Tickets. So I domained or registered Tickets.de. And then a year, and then a year later, somebody said, oh, you can actually Buy things on this thing on the computer. Okay. Do you want box to, office right at your desk? Do you want to uh, maybe sell tickets on the internet? And I went tickets for what? Tickets for your shows. So this is in 1999. So we started to sell tickets on the internet under the name of Tickets DE for our shows, and it had zero interest. I mean, zero. Sure. You know, it took a while, and then suddenly it got more interest. And then in the end, um, it got so big that I couldn't deal with Tickets DE and my promoting business, and I sold it. However, what I had, the reason why I wanted to own my own ticketing business is because I wanted to keep the surcharges low. I wanted to be able to, you know, to tell acts, this is what we sold, this is how we done it, and I wanted to guarantee that the ticket prices were as we had discussed it with the agent and the manager. You know, we, I wanted to be able to say, so for example, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm gonna charge 25 bucks. The 25 bucks would have a, two, a 10% um, box office fee, so that's 250, that's it. There is no system fee, there's nothing else. So I wanted to do that. At that time, Ticketmaster wasn't around, but Eventim was getting quite big, and I didn't want to be with the big guys. I didn't want to be with any of the, you know, the major bullies. And I stayed like that. And then in 2010, I had a dinner with Tim Clark and David Entholfen, who were managing and still managing Robbie Williams, which at the time was my, my biggest act. And we had done a, a, a very, very big tour, stadium tour in 2006. And I said, Skumek, we want you to start to think how we can eradicate touts. And I had never even heard the way touting before. And I went, well, what, what exactly do you mean? And they said... Touting is now done now done on the internet. People are touting tickets on the internet. You need to find a way to protect us from. And when you say touting, you mean reselling and scalping. That's correct. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't know what to do, and I went to my lawyers. And they said, there's there's an interesting case in Hamburg where if you book, if any sports club has the fan area behind the goal, for example. So here, what had happened is that a tout had sold. 400 tickets from this fan area to the opposition without telling them that these were the spots and two people got killed because suddenly if you imagine you were going to see a soccer game and then you were ending up in the opposition's black area it wasn't funny so it's not safe yeah absolutely not safe so the, so you
1: guys take your sports very fucking seriously over there what
3: do you mean of course <laughs>
1: So, the the law was passed. I'm just saying no one's ever died at a Globetrotters game. That, that's all I'm saying. Maybe play the Germans. <laughs> the Globetrotters versus the Germans. Next on Scooby-Doo.
3: What had happened is that the, the soccer club, because this had happened, went, okay, so how can we stop? that somebody like Dan buys the tickets but sells them to schoolmates who gives it to the opposition team. So they said, why? The only thing we can do is we can put the name of each purchaser on the ticket. So I took that. My lawyers told me, if you take that to concerts, then you will stop the the, the secondary ticketing set. So in 2011, we did a stadium tour with a British act called Take That, and Robbie Williams was one of the original members of Take That, for Americans that don't know
1: Robbie Williams, and you should because he's one of the biggest acts in Europe, they are in sync. Take that as in sync. And then Justin Timberlake would be Robbie Williams for Europe. Ah, yeah. Yep. Actually, Robbie is probably bigger in Europe than Justin is in America, if you can actually believe that. But he's a stadium act that just crushes in Europe and Australia.
3: Yeah. I mean, just to give you the idea, in 2006, we sold 1.27 million tickets in Germany alone. You know, we did t- every show we did, we did two... You know, we did two nights at the Olympic Stadium. Anyway, so so we the did business
1: that. that you and Simon Moran do on Robbie with just Robbie is
3: more than most companies do in general. It's insane. That's correct. So we then put names on tickets for the tour in 2011, and it worked. And the t- you know we had about maybe 3% of people that couldn't get in because the ticket said John Doe, and we said, okay, where's your ID that says John Doe? No, nee, my name is not John Doe. My name is Dan okay, Walker. Well, it doesn't say that, does it? And so we started that, and it is not as difficult it is as maybe people want you to believe, and so we kept on doing it. We did it for the Chili Peppers, for Florence and the Machine, for Radiohead, for Tom Waits, for Kraftwerk, for Rammstein. Anything that was hot, And that was possibly ending up in the hands of secondary ticketing touts we personalized.
1: All right. So obviously, one of the cooler things is Rampstein being a stadium act. Now, coming up and promoting clubs and theaters into arenas is one thing, but doing stadium shows is a whole different learning field, particularly in Europe, because there's only so many stadiums because you get. You guys don't have as many football teams, but you have all these soccer teams. So there are all these stadiums, but none of them were built for concerts. Most of these were built to hold massive sporting events and Olympics and what have you. So you're building stages, you're bringing in production, you're covering fields, you are inventing a venue, even at a venue, because it's a sporting event space for the most part. So as you grew into becoming a stadium promoter, how did you get that tool set? And particularly with the biggest production you could possibly have in Rammstein
3: through some of these European venues. So I, I'm going to go back then for about four, three or four years when I had a meeting with Rammstein's management in Berlin. And they said, there is an entity out there that are going to make an offer for more shows than Germany. And I went, how many other shows? And they said, well, this entity is going to make an offer for the world would you like to compete with the Vert? And I went, fuck yeah. And they said, okay, well, then you have three months to put the offer together, or I think maybe it was seven weeks. And I went back to my office, and I went, okay, so how am I going to do this? I have never actually promoted a tour in Europe, leave aside aside the Vert before, on stadium level. has to be said, as Rammstein had not played stadiums before, but we were all kind of sure that that would be the next step because we have done multiple massive nice arenas we had done some in Berlin for example we've done 80,000 tickets in an outdoor amphitheater but we had never done 40 50 60 thousand capacity stadium on our own name our own tickets so this other entity turned out to be an American
1: obviously in this case we know you're either talking about live Nation or AEG
3: because there's only two promoters that really send those global offers for the most part right so rang J. I said Jay, an known Jay, because Jay, before he became what he is now... Jay Marcian. Yeah, which is the, the boss of the world. He was the boss of Europe. And when he was the boss of Europe, he also was the boss of an of a, um, arena then in Berlin. It used to be called the O2 Arena, which, you know, Anschutz had built but they wanted us, they made us use, a, you know, a local ticketing system, Eventim, that I didn't want to use. And I said, well, if you want my shows, you need me to have 100% of the inventory. And they said no. So I took all of my shows, the Chili Peppers, the Pearl Jams, the rumsteins, to other arenas, and had a former partner and still friend, Marcel Avram, said, make you want to maybe meet Jay. He's a really good guy. He's going to be in Berlin. Why don't you have lunch with him? So I had lunch with Jay, and Jay said, I want your inventory. And I said, well, you know what the price is. You have to give me 100% of the, you know, you want my shows, I want my tickets. We did a deal, everything was good. So I know Jay well. So I went to Jay, I said, Jay, can you help me put an offer together for... You do America, I do the rest of the world. Okay, so you were going to work with AEG so you could send a competing global offer
1: against the other entity, which I'm guessing was Live Nation, as if you're working with AEG, they probably were competing with
3: the other guy. So we did, and then we won, and I kept it. And so I became the promoter for Europe, and I went to all of my people um, in all the different markets that I knew, and there were eight of them that were Live Nation promoters. So I had to go to Herman, and said, Herman... After 25 years, I now have to walk away from our business that we have built together with Rammstein because your company had tried to do something to me and I'm not going to work with you. So I had to walk away from eight of those people and find new friends that I had also known. And then we started to do all of that and it sold out very quickly. And then we were supposed to do shows uh, this year that we are moving, well, sorry, for last year, That we moved into this year. Yeah, so I became...
1: The so it, does AEG still promote the U.S.? Mm. Okay, wow, okay. So that relationship has continued to blossom. But you guys, so you guys split the two or you guys don't co-promote the
3: two? What we did is okay. Christopher from TA became the agent for America and South America and he put it with AEG in America.
1: Amazing. So you figured out how to compete on a global level and won. How did you learn how to do stadium shows? In general, like
3: they're just harder to do. In 2003, then we started to work with Robbie Williams on stadium level. We did the first stadium we ever had done um, in Cologne for Robbie, and we sold 50,000 tickets. And from then on, me and my team, we just learned continuously. And I'm still learning. I flew out to every single stadium and every single show that we did for Rammstein to see every single spot. Because I learned from Marcel you need to see what you're, what you're selling. So I went to the stadium, I went to the open fields, everything that we turned into an arena for Runstein, I had seen before. And I, I wouldn't say if you've done one, you've done every. No, you don't, because every market, every country has different logistical, I would say, issues. But if you get a great team and if you have the, the mindset you can do it. So I think it's like doing big arenas. It's like doing stadiums. Once you've done a whole bunch of them, you know, it's, it's okay. You just have to ex- be extremely careful. And now with COVID, you know, we're learning a whole bunch of other things that we, you know, need to look up in the future.
1: Yeah, COVID—that's a whole new book of challenges that we're all excited to work our way through. Anything we can do to get the doors back open, we'll, we're going to learn. We're going to learn all the rules, and we're going to try and keep our fans safe under any scenario. But that's going to be a, a slow learning curve, so to speak. But hey, we got nothing but time right now to learn. Excuse me. I got to thank you from your club days with the Violent Femmes to printing tickets to learning the business to growing into management, ticketing, an agency business, and promoting. You seem to have done it. Oh, it's a very impressive career. I can't wait to see what you do next. I mean, are you going to start minting your own records and and recording artists as well?
3: No, I won't. I probably won't be doing that. But I'm I'm striving in helping young female artists and managers to have business that will become frutitious. I think is the the, the proper word. So I'm trying to you know now that we have all this this extra time, I'm trying to help and nurture you know, young females in Germany and Europe and some in America to to get bigger and to foster them. And that's fun.
1: Thank you so much for making time. This has been a truly enjoying discussion. Thank you as well. And I hope to see you, as I said, stay healthy and
3: your families. And I'll see you on the other side.
1: Love, 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 Skumik. Thrilled we finally able to get him on the podcast. One of Germany's best right here on Promoter 101.
0: This is Nate Kranz. I'm with First Avenue, Palace Theater, assorted other venues in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. I'm excited to be on Promoter
1: 101.
2: This week's Quote of the Week comes to us from Eleanor Roosevelt.
1: You must do the things you think you cannot do. Boom,
2: motherfucker. Boom.
1: Hi, this is Nick Farkas from Avenco. I'm going to be on Promoter 101.
2: All right, folks, that does it. That's a wrap on episode 224 of Promoter 101. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. This the 224th episode of Promoter 101. And a special thanks to all of our wonderful guests from MCT Agencies, Shumek Shabatka, to Larry Russ, Corey Adams, of course, Dan's lovely wife, Elodie, and Dan himself making a rare appearance on the War Stories part of our podcast. Thank you all for being on here and for making time to sit down with our audience. It was great to hear about it. We hope to have you back on the podcast. If you're listening and you like what you heard today, shoot us a note. We want to hear from you. What else do you want to hear about? What else do you want to know? Shoot a note to steiny at promoter101.net and send us your thoughts.
1: We'll be back next month featuring brilliant Corners, Jordan Carland, representing Death Cab for Cutie, Postal Service, Best Coast, Soccer Mom, real estate, new pornography, and Josh Ritter. And I've been thinking we should have asked him, in Europe, is soccer moms football moms? Or would that be in America? The soccer football? I'm, I'm confused. How should that be pronounced depending on what your geography is?
2: Well, it's soccer mommy, Dan. So you have to you have to remember the, the kind of uh, the mommy thing plays over there. So there's a bunch of different things. Is it, is it football nanny? I don't know. How does it go over there? These are questions you're going to have to ask Jordan when he comes to the podcast. You'll have to tune in next month to hear what the results are.
1: And also check us out every Tuesday on Clubhouse for Promoter 101 Storytellers Live. Coming up March 9th, the very first one, Jimmy Kloplik. That's 6.30 Pacific, 9.30 Eastern, only on Clubhouse.
2: To all of our friends across the pond and around the world at ILMC this week, we hope to see you out at the conferences. And to everyone in the music business, to everyone in the world, we're wishing for shows to come back and play as soon as possible. Stay safe out there. We'll see you real soon.
4: Cheers! Call your mother! Hi, I'm Mitch Rose, co-head of the music department at CAA, and I'm on Promoter 101.
3: Bye-bye.